0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Wajahat Ali, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Dude, you're lactose intolerant, you're left-handed. It's a really good thing you can write. Your first book is out. (laughs) Go back to where you came from. Where did this start? How did this start? When did you decide to write this book?
1: Yes, lactose intolerant, IBS, uh, flat-footed I learned two months ago, inherited OCD from my father, awesome, used to wear husky pants as a kid, those who know who know, so I I apologize for those who used to wear husky pants, you know, left-handed, which anyone who's Asian or comes from South Asian families knows that the left hand is only used to do one thing, and they tried to literally beat us out of our left-handedness, and I was oftentimes the only token Muslim and token brown person, and my parents decided to name me Wajahat, It's the winner of a name and it's 2022 and there's still no Coke bottle with my name on it yet. So all this basically is to say that I grew up a winner and I grew up as the archetypal protagonist of the American narrative. And and it's one of those situations where you can either cry or you can laugh. And I'm not one for a crier. So I I choose to laugh and embrace it all and its absurdities. And that's kind of the genesis of the book. Right. And I think for the rest of us who are in the margins, on the outside, who are the sidekicks, the goofy sidekicks, the villains of the American narrative. This book is about loving a country that always doesn't love us back. It's an elegy for the rest of us. And it's about how hopefully we can connect the dots and move forward as a multiracial democracy. And hopefully I've done it with some hope and humor.
0: It's a really hopeful book. You end on an impossibly hopeful note, which is exactly what I needed when I finished reading this. But I want to start in Fremont, California.
1: I grew up in the kind of sleepy suburban town of Fremont in between San Jose and Berkeley with a whole bunch of brown folks and Indian folks and Sikh folks and white folks and black folks. And I went to school at James Leach Elementary School and I went to Harker in Saratoga where oftentimes I was the token Muslim and the token brown guy. And the funny thing is, I think you find out your place in the American hierarchy, you find out your your place in the cast. it's school. When you go to school, you think, wait, doesn't everyone have turmeric stains? How come no one else is speaking Urdu? How come no one else has green stuff in their mom's kebabs? And that's when you realize, oh, I'm not the hero. Oh, I'm the other. Oh, mama, can you make meatloaf? And mom's like, we will never eat meatloaf in this house.
0: And you're a comics nerd, you're a Star Wars nerd, you're a Lego nerd. Video game nerd. Mm There are references to Indiana Jones, there are references to Marty McFly. I mean, you're an American kid. You learn to tell stories at a really early age and you realize this is what you want to do. And dude, you're first generation American. We don't really do that. We become doctors and lawyers <laughs> and accountants and consultants. Yes. The dreaded, the dreaded consultant.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but as long as a consultant makes six figures, no one cares. See, this is, you touched upon something. When you are the child of immigrants, especially the immigrants who came after 1965, the Immigration Nationality Act, right? Which made discriminating against someone on national origin illegal and basically lifted the completely hateful and restrictive immigration quota that was placed in the 1920s, because at that time, the invaders weren't Mexicans and Muslims. At that time, the invaders were, wait for it, the Italians and the Eastern European Jews and everyone from Asia. So now you get the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act. And our parents were young men and women who were like, hooray, America, the Willy Wonka ticket, let's go and let's work hard. And we, you know we can build ourselves up. And you get there as a first-generation American, born and raised, And your parents' generation, because like all parents, they want to take care of you. They want security. They realize they came here and people mocked them for their eyes and their nose and their hair color and their goofy accent. They're like, don't rock the boat. Here's the checklist of success. We took the lumps so you don't have to. You go for the holy trinity of occupations, doctor, engineer, dubious businessman who makes somehow a lot of money and gets a BMW or Acura or a nice house. You marry someone who's like seven or eight on the hotness scale. You keep your head low. You don't cause too much trouble. And and that's that. That's the recipe of success. We don't have, you don't become an artist and a writer. I didn't leave my country in India and Pakistan and Japan and China for my son to go to UC Berkeley to become a writer And, and also show me models of success. There's no models of success. Where is the, the South Asian or brown or Muslim storyteller who makes money? Do you want to be a loser who's single and poor? Of course not. So that gets drilled into your head very early from not from my parents, but in the communities that we're raised. And plus, we don't have those models of success. Like you mentioned, all those 80s action movies. I saw Chuck Norris killing scores of brown people and I was rooting for him. And then you, you get older and you're like, holy shit, this is really racist. And but you, and, and it kind of without realizing it you are told on a daily basis you don't matter your story doesn't matter you are not the protagonist at most you'll be a you'll be a punchline and a sidekick that's you know that's what you'll be um look at john hughes movies 16 candles Mm -hmm. you know uh, what's that guy's name luck dong long long
0: long duck dong oh
1: i was close
0: you were very close but you remember it right and even when i was young I i
1: saw that i'm like this ain't right And Mm -hmm. even Indiana Jones, if you see the movie again, we used to watch Temple of Doom like 45 times. Mm -hmm. We used to love that movie. But even then we're like, yo, we don't eat monkey brains. Uh, What's happening, right? So you sit there and you absorb all of this. And if your story, if you aren't writing your story in America, your story is being written for you. And if you Mm -hmm. aren't telling your story, your story is being told to you. I remember I was able to create my own superhero origin story when I was 10 years old. I was a shy kid, too. I was also very sick. And my teacher, Miss Peterson, said, write. A creative story one pager this was the year of 1991 Robin Hood was coming out where Kevin Costner was playing this British Robin Hood with an American accent I couldn't care less about him but Morgan Freeman the voice of God was his sidekick a badass Muslim named Azim. and we we're like this is amazing there's a Muslim and he prays in a way if you watch that movie Azim prays in a way that no Muslim has ever prayed in the history of the world so that's Hollywood for you they could spend 40 million dollars on a movie, they can't literally ask one Muslim, yo, how do you pray? But we didn't care because he was so badass. So I did a 10 page with rendition of Robin Hood. And my teacher liked it so much that she said, you have to recite the story in front of the homeroom class, the same homeroom class that used to make fun of me because I was the fat kid. And for those who are listening in the eighties and nineties, there were two categories of kids, normal, fat. And if you were fat, every day was World War III. So sick, shy, brown kid, sweating, uh, left-handed, you know, lactose intolerant, and fat kid. And so I got up and I read this story. It was a 10 minutes uh, read. I was so scared, but I had them. They laughed at all the right parts. They were wrapped with attention. And that's when I discovered I might be onto something. And I went home, gave the story to my father. My father read it, drank his chai, and said, Betta, you have a talent, you should think about becoming a writer. And my mom ran from the kitchen and said, but first become a doctor.
0: I don't know, that sounds like a reasonable compromise, <clears throat> I mean.
1: It is, yeah, yeah. So my parents are very lucky in this regard that they're very traditional, but very radical. They've always nurtured my artistic talents and supported me. My mom though, and my dad also, and I think it's right, they're like, you know, but also just have insurance, but keep at it until you make it. But you know, it's good to have multi talents so you can pay the bills. That That was my parents' approach
0: you are a lawyer. I mean, technically, I'm a licensed you, could, attorney. you could practice law if you felt like it.
1: I literally tomorrow have it on my calendar to give my annual state bar of California dues. And mm-hmm. so, yes, if I decided tomorrow that I want to start practicing law and probably get disbarred because I haven't practiced in 10 years and would probably have malpractice, then yes, I could do it. But I did. I went to law school, took the bar exam, passed it. And I practiced law for about two, three years while I was hustling and trying to create my writing
0: you have an undergrad degree from Berkeley in English.
1: Yes, uh, super. I, I just like how you're like a this Asian auntie, just like shaming me publicly. Like, no, nope.
0: it's not that, because you and I have very similar stories. Dude, I did not take the consulting route, and I became a bookseller. And yes, there was a lot of conversation in the house about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a sibling, though, who became a doctor, at least? No.
0: My little oh, brother. No, no, no. My little brother ran away with the circus and now he's a photographer. And I'm really not kidding about ran away with the circus. He was aroused about with Cirque du Soleil for like, six oh,
1: months. that's I feel so bad for your parents. Because usually when they have <laughs> one of them, usually when they have one Miwa, there's like another one that like just balances it out. As long as one of them balances it out. Right. Nope. Yep. Yeah. So so I you can empathize with me because I'm the only child, which makes it so right. much worse. Right. Because all hopes were on me. So I went to UC Berkeley. And again, credit to my parents. They they I think they knew their son in the way like they knew if they pressured me, I would rebel like I'd be like your brother. I literally would run away to the circus. So they kind of let me do my own thing. I was undeclared Mm -hmm. until my senior year. I always knew probably like you knew or like your brother knew that we were going to reject the Trinity. We were going to reject the checklist, but you can't articulate it, especially not in our communities. You just can't say it. You have no allies. So you just go along and say, "Okay, I'll become a consultant. Oh, okay, I'll take economics. Oh, I'll just go do law. That's safe. That checks the box. But I think the back of my head, if I'm to be really honest with myself, I always knew I would be doing this, something like this. And it was my senior year at UC Berkeley. 9-11 then happened. FML, as the kids say, I was a member of the Muslim Student Association. Dark humor. If Muslims knew that 9-11 was going to happen, I would have joined the Indian Student Association and learned how to Bhangra. But no. I was so happy to see other Muslims. By my fourth year then, they elected me to be part of the board. And then overnight, as you knew, it was like the baptism by fire, right? Overnight, a pre-911 and a post-911. Overnight, tag, your it. America's microscope is on you and you and 1.7 billion Muslims and this thing called Islam are smeared and you have to defend your civilizational capacity and worth. While that was happening, I was also in Ishmael Reed's short story writing class. And that's one of those sliding door moments that this guy who's undeclared on a whim decides to take a short story writing class taught by the right professor who saw a talent in me and encouraged me during this moment of collective madness and hazing of 9-11. And he said, you know what? Stop wasting your time writing short stories. You're really good at dialogue and characters. You should write a play. All these plays are ethnic. No one considers them ethnic, right? Eugene O'Neill, Irish, ethnic, right? Arthur Miller, Jewish. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, Black, why don't you write an American traditional kitchen drama, but from the lens of your family, Pakistani Muslim, okay, you have two months, give me 20 pages or you'll fail, bye. And that was the start of my writing career.
0: And you also produced it all over the Bay Area. I mean, that was kind of cool reading how you just got in there, did the grassroots outreach, talked people into serving dinner while you read your play. (laughs) It's terrific. But this is also a tricky moment for you and your family because your parents have gone to jail. Right. That so, was not a piece of the story I was expecting at all. I yeah, so that's, know that I, was I don't think
1: anyone's expecting that piece of the story. Right. And I don't think we were expecting that piece of the story. And I think that's why that that piece of the story comes, I think, towards the middle and kind of gut mm-hmm. punches a lot of folks, which coincides really with my life and this charting of the last 30, 40 years in America, because right? there was two crises that happened. One on a national scale was 9-11. And anyone its not just those who are Muslim, but those who looked muslim but let's not forget, a few days after 9-11, the first hate crime was against, this is how stupid bigotry is, right? It was against a sick man in Arizona. Uh-huh. So there's 19 foreign hijackers, 15 from Saudi Arabia, two from, I think, Lebanon, one from UAE, one from Qatar, uh, one from Egypt, who bring down the two towers. And a white supremacist says, I'm going to go attack a sick man in Arizona. It was madness. It was so mad that for a while, we didn't eat French fries. We used to eat freedom fries. Okay, just giving you an example for those of you who are young or forgot. With that type of national crisis and scrutiny, a few months later, I had applied for law school. I had turned 21. I'm a senior. Uh, I had finished this 20 pages of the play, had passed the class. And I'm at Shalimar Restaurant in the Tenderloin. It ain't nothing tender about the Tenderloin. Eating chicken <laughs> borti. Eat. And I got this call from my aunt that's saying, um, you should come home. Your parents have been arrested. I don't know what's happening. But the FBI came and there are all these people with guns and they dragged them out in the morning. And you're the only child and you have two grandmothers at home. So you should come home. And my parents got arrested in something called Operation Cyberstorm, which at that time was apparently like the biggest anti piracy bust, right? It was Microsoft teaming up with the FBI. Even Robert Mueller, who at the time was the head of the FBI, came down. My parents, along with nearly two dozen people, their names are on the front page of the FBI. And my parents, though, this is the bad luck or the dark humor here. My parents had nothing to do with the piracy ring. Instead, my parents were in the same office as the people allegedly doing the piracy ring. And when it comes to Microsoft, my parents two years prior had done a different business with Microsoft, some educational resale program. From their perspective, the business was good, they made the money, they moved on. So now my parents, just from my parents' perspective, and in the book, I tried to be very fair. I I was critical, I interviewed them, they have their regrets, right? But from my parents' perspective, my father, middle-aged Pakistani man in his Ross pajama suit, And he was praying and, you know, he watches his 2020. My mom, you know, was reading her magazine. They go to sleep. Two dozen armed folks come in the morning, drag them out. They're like, what the hell is happening? They read the 31 count indictment and they almost pass out. They're like, what? A story becomes flattened overnight. All they see is scammers, fraud. And they only read the headlines and the complaints. And in the complaint, Microsoft said, alleges, you defrauded us to the tune of a hundred million dollars. So everyone thought I had a hundred million dollars. So I come home, my parents are in jail. They got a business to run. I got bills. I got to get a lawyer and I have two grandmothers to take care of and I'm about to graduate and I have to go back and do these two finals which I somehow did. And thankfully my English senior thesis, professor Susan Schweik coincidentally read about the case, said, I had no idea they're your parents. I'm so sorry. If you can get me the senior thesis by next December, I can give you an incomplete and you can still graduate. And that's how I was able to graduate. So all this was happening in that moment.
0: Another piece of that part of your story is the fact that the community walked away from you. Oh, yeah. The Pakistani-American community. And that's shocking to me. People just walked away and left you without resources. I mean, as you said, you're a 21-year-old kid. There is no money. There's, there's, I, there are I, I, no I, grandparents <laughs> to tap for money because no. <laughs> you are taking care of them. I mean,
1: I, I, you know, I remember a phone call. This, I mean, it takes me back, right? Cause you used to, I used to sit there all day and I used to get that robotic voice from jail, which I still remember. You have a collect call from, and then you used to accept and there used to be my mom. And then after I just finished talking to my mom, used to be my dad. And I remember early on, I talked to both of them. And I said, you know, listen, I'm not going to judge you. I don't know what you guys have done or haven't done. But if you have this $100 million, I could really use it. But there was nothing. And two things happened with the community. Number one, post 9 11, there was a chilling effect. People were terrified. If you were a Muslim, a Muslim charity, a Muslim organization, a Muslim leader, you were a target. And so in that climate, people were terrified, Miwa. And I remember an attorney told me this, a Pakistani Muslim attorney who was a family friend. He said, Beta, son, people are terrified. People are afraid of what's in their own laundry, taxes, immigration, maybe they did something. No one's going to come out and help, number one. The second thing that happened, and I think anyone who comes from communities, ethnic community, religious community, it doesn't matter, community politics, people love stomping on the shining star that falls. My parents early on, my father and my mother had a very good marriage. He was the first one early on to make it. He was the first one to get the big house. And there was just something like the Ali's, They have the big screen TV in 1986, where they watch Top Gun. The Ali's look at the, look at the mom. She's always skinny. We have love handles. (laughs) The Ali's look, somehow they're able to tolerate their mother-in-law and they haven't divorced. Look at their son goes to Berkeley. There's just something there. There's like a target. And we love bashing this idea of the people who have success. There was a viciousness and cruelty. I did not expect that just got unleashed in that year or two years.
0: And I think, It is really important to stress that, you know, 9-11 was only 20 years ago. I was living in New York when it happened. I lived downtown. Mm. We now have a generation of kids who were not on the planet when 9-11 happened. It's wild. Part of why I'm coming back to 9-11, beyond the fact that it's this pivotal moment in American history and the American flags, man, they were everywhere. Everywhere. They were everywhere. You were in an improv troupe at Berkeley. And I bring this up because clearly you didn't get the memo about debate club. (laughs) I love the idea that you were in an improv troupe and you did this in high school too. But I also remember that everyone was saying, oh, humor's dead. We can't be funny anymore. The whole world has changed. And that lasted for what, 77 seconds? I mean, Saturday Night Live didn't go that weekend. I remember. It was a Tuesday and and they didn't go. and, And we were all walking around sort of holding our heads. But the idea that you get up, as Captain Islam <laughs> in a costume and everything.
1: I think the way you respond, right, in life, like I said, as some people cry, which is fine, but I choose laughter. I think humor, if done wisely and strategically, can help sweeten the medicine. It can make us understand right. things we're otherwise resistant to. But sometimes it also just acts, like you said, like a catharsis, which is a release.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A release uh, provides relief. And in that, in those days, and I remember, there was such tension, fear, also shock permission to laugh or not laugh like people needed this release and they didn't know Uh, we were part of the Gwad Squad which was our sketch comedy troupe that we had created at UC Berkeley and we were like we have to postpone our show now I think it was like two weeks after 9-11 should we do it should we not do it is it bad taste will it be disrespectful so we made the decision to do it and not only that I said why don't I do this skit where I'm Captain Islam this, this brown dude, a student by day, but then I wear like a towel behind my back and put an eye on a piece of paper on my chest and I'm Captain Islam and I save the day. And well, you know, it's, it's a way of kind of breaking the tension, but also it's a subversion, right? Because at that time, Islam and Muslims were the boogeyman. I come in to save the day. Literally, my troop was down with it. And then we did it. And man, people just howled with laughter and applauded. And that's when we knew because this is this is humor. If done wisely, if done well can provide that release and catharsis. And throughout my entire life, in fact, I've relied upon, I think, humor in in a way to booby trap, to dismantle, to take on haters, to take on bullies, to survive, to make sense of the world, to comment about the absurdity of of our current reality, to sweeten the medicine for, for people to actually understand and listen as a release. People cannot reconcile that a person can be a practicing Muslim and be jovial.
0: Yeah, I don't think in a strange way. I think it is deeply subversive because people have assigned a label to you. And it happens so frequently. I mean, hi, not a member of the model minority. Anyone who knows me in real life will tell you, I swear like a sailor.
1: Yeah, I swear a lot. Even before this. I
0: I just have to get it out and then I can do the podcast and not swear. (laughs) But that's part of it. I didn't get the inscrutable gene. Like That Mm -hmm. is not a factory preset that came with this. It just... I don't know where they left it. My brother didn't get it either. It's pretty funny, but put us in a room with the cousins and they're all just, they can do it. And we're just like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> the settings busted. You play Wordle.
1: You just play Wordle. See, the thing is, you and me are like, I, I, I said this in the book. Like, I felt like we were like, God took his eye off from the molding process for just a second. And we were the ones with the, had like the dents and we were just shipped out and there was no recall. And then like, and I just joke in the book, like God's like, eh, let's just see how this one plays out. That factory preset is broken in me, and it always was.
0: I'm okay with having the busted preset. I really am. It's liberating, in a way. It makes it easier to code switch, because we're still doing it. That's right. You grew up with parents with an accent. My mom had an accent that I couldn't hear. I remember mm. people pointing out to me that my mother had an accent. I was like, what are you talking about? No, she doesn't. She did. I just yeah. never heard it because she's my mom.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's one of those things, you know, like we don't, it's the accents, which are, and I talk, write about that in the book also is like, you know, the accents really uh, were, were seen as a scar, as the sign of a scarlet letter for our parents' generation or mm. immigrants. So if you really think about it, instead of mocking them, these people came from another country, mm-hmm. another culture without resources, leaving their family behind, learned This language, English, mastered it to the point where they were able to succeed financially and they know the other language. If anything, we should celebrate these people. My parents didn't care. They're like, you're learning Urdu. You're not learning English. That was the opposite extreme. My parents couldn't give a shit. They're like, I don't care if they mock you. You're not eating meatloaf. You're eating biryani. I don't care if you don't know English. You're five. You'll learn. They literally dropped me off at preschool. I only knew three phrases of English. I said this in the book. Shut up, idiot, and uh uh-oh, spaghettio. And I'm like, maybe you should have taught me more. And they're like, eh, you did fine. And so <laughs> my parents were the opposite extreme. I literally came home one day because you just, you absorb it. You realize your place and you realize because of your accent, your language, your, your eyes, your skin color, you're not the mainstream. I went home. I was six. I told mean I said, well, you name me Wajahat. Can you give me an American name? Can you name me Wilbur? Because I think I was reading Charlotte's Web. Or mm-hmm. can you call me Walter? And my mom's like, your name is Wajahat. You will be Wajahat.
0: I also have an uncle who chose Nelson as his English name. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? No, that's let's that, not do that. That name
1: is so white that even white people are like, yo. We
0: you can don't do better than Nelson. anymore. <laughs> but here's the thing. You talk about this in the book, too. I mean, for a while, there was no designation for Muslim or Central Asian. Yep. You know, Pakistan. We don't even have names mm. in the census. Now you can say, you know, I'm Muslim. But for a while, you were doing what I was doing, was checking the other box.
1: Yeah, you were an other like me. I yes. was an
0: other because my dad is actually white, which makes things a little more complicated. But I was looking at this going, well, I'm not technically completely Asian. And so I was other until I could finally fill in Eurasian on the census a couple of I years.
1: was other too. And when you don't have the box, and I write about this also, so many immigrants, they're like, hmm, I've come to this country. I'm the other. Who is succeeding? Who is on top? Who are the heroes? Who are the models? Who are the billboards? Who does America like? These blonde white folks. Who does America hate? Who is hunted? Who is jailed? Who is beaten up? Poor black folks and brown folks. Hmm, I need to survive. What am I going to chase? Blackness or whiteness? I will chase whiteness. I will move towards whiteness. I will think and believe I'm white. And maybe one day, one day, if I click my heels, I'll be accepted as white. And this has happened throughout U.S. history for safety, for security. People have chosen whiteness. And then you mentioned the model minority myth. It is a myth and it's a dangerous myth. And oftentimes the people who bought into the model minority myth didn't realize they were actually being enforcers of white supremacy. Because the model minority myth, and specifically us, quote unquote, Asians, to this day are used by whiteness to say, how come you Blacks and Browns can't be like these good minorities who play Wordle and have good spelling and get good jobs and good degrees, right? And so it's one of the situations that I think our parents' generation, many of them unconsciously if you ask them about it, they won't say, they're like, what are you talking about? We just came to survive. But unconsciously, they came in for all the reasons we mentioned, their accent, their skin color, their uh, their religion. They're like, dude, we got to just survive, uh, chase whiteness. And 9-11, at least for many, not all, many Muslims was that wake up call that you're not white. You'll never be white. This country will turn on you on a dime. And for those Muslims who are like, no, no, this will pass. Then the election of Donald Trump came and woke them up. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting, painful situations where it was a necessary rude awakening for people to realize their place in the American society and what type of alliances we really need to build to create a multiracial democracy.
0: And it's not just alliances to create multiracial democracy. We also need to talk about mental health in POC communities. And it's really important that you talk about your OCD and you talk about your dad's OCD, which his was exacerbated when he was in jail because there are no Correct. services for that. And you're really fortunate that you could have treatment for your OCD. But you look at communities of color and either the resources aren't there to begin with, which is the majority of the stories are the resources aren't there. Yep. But then too, we have this idea in the community And when I say community, I'm I'm using community in the larger sense of Black and Brown people. BiPoc is a strange phrase, but so I'm not. (laughs) It's a
1: robotic entity from the future sent to destroy the rest of us. BiPoc.
0: Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't like it. I'm not a fan. But at the same time, we do have a crisis, especially in in Asian communities, whether we're South Asian, Southeast Asian, East Asian, where we're not talking about this stuff and we're not getting help for the people who need it, and that is going to become more and more of an issue, I think, as people are coming to terms with the idea that there are systemic issues in America that include them in ways they don't want to be included and exclude them in ways that they are desperate to avoid.
1: That's exactly right. First and foremost, the pandemic has flattened us, but Mm -hmm. flattened us unequally. So to your first point, you're witnessing right now this desperate need for resources and outreach to people of color who are suffering, not because they don't want to take the vaccine, not because they want to protect themselves, is because they're, they live miles away from a healthcare facility, mm-hmm. uh, because they're mired in economic poverty, because they don't have the resources like the rest of us. And then the tragedy of America is that those who have the resources are rejecting it for urine and dewormers. So that's where we are, number one. But number two, I think, and the book talks about this point about within our communities, addressing mental health is seen as weakness. Uh, mental health is not discussed. You're supposed to grit it out, toughen it out. You're not spoiled. You're not privileged. You're not weak like those other Américans. We, we, we gritted it out. We came here with nothing. And this is just spoiled person talk. And this is Western decadence. And you have to pray it away and just pray harder and work harder. That's it. What do you mean depression? What do you have to be depressed about? You have nothing to be depressed about. You have food on your table. You have a roof over your head. That's the old school mindset that many of us from these quote-unquote communities were raised with. And the one really beautiful and brilliant change that I've seen this young generation, we never talked about self-help or self-love or self-care 2001, 2002, 2003 when our communities needed it. Th- this is a new phenomenon. These young kids are like, yeah, I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to invest in joy. I'm going to take a break. I- I'm, g- I'm going to make sure I don't burn out. We're like, what? This is revolutionary. Like The fact that these kids or the young generation is doing this, it gives me hope is because so many of us chose martyrdom. Our success was through masochism. And I'm at that age now where my parents' generation, right? 60s, 70s are going older, some are dying. My mom says that so many of our friends, especially the men, are basically low-key depressed and have been for years, but they just never like admit it. And then you sit there and think about it. I'm like, that's why that uncle has behaved that way his entire life. He suffers from massive, oh, like there's like a light bulb that goes out. Like, oh, but bi- that's bipolar, of course. Oh, anxiety. Oh, and then my friend, my age now, who is in that community of the Bay Area, South Asian Muslim, he says most of his clients are Muslims and South Asian folks who smile that fake plastic smile, but are drowning in anxiety. And, and especially not exclusively, and it happens with Asian American women, also. You, you guys have seen the data about this. The, the amount of pressure they put on themselves, but there's no release. There's no place to go. You can't admit it. And so in the book, I decided to talk about my OCD, which I inherited from my father, which is an anxiety disorder. You just don't realize sometimes you share something, which you think is so trivial. And you get so many people emailing you saying, thank you, because you've given a voice to something. And all you've given a voice to something, you've given me permission. And when more and more people come out and say, it, it becomes less of a stigma.
0: Exactly. One of the biggest moments of joy that I got From this book. And there were plenty. I mean, this is this is really a laugh out loud experience for me. And obviously, I'm not Pakistani. I didn't grow up. You're not Pakistani, I know. Shocking, right? I didn't grow up in Fremont, California, but you and (laughs) I have so many points of intersection. I grew up on the East Coast, you know, I spent a lot of time running around the states. But there are so many points. Mm. It's the specifics of your story that I think people are going to key into, which is exactly your intent. But one of the great moments I got from this is when you're talking about Ishmael Reed and putting on your play, the domestic crusaders. And this is the play that Ishmael Reed encouraged you to write. You finished it. You turn it in. You get it produced in the Bay area. You bring it to New York with Ishmael's help and his wife's help. And he introduces you to Tony Morrison. Oh
1: yeah. (laughs) Isn't that wild? We
0: need to talk about this moment because I love the idea here at the New York and poets cafe, this play is being staged. I mean, This is a moment in a young playwright's career that is like, this is amazing. And Toni Morrison looks at you and says a very cool thing.
1: So, what happened was our play got rejected by everyone. And Carla Blank, who was is Ishmael's partner, was the dramaturge. And Ishmael and me, we literally did DIY to the point where my mom used to cook the food. I used to drive the U Haul. We used my living room set to dress the set. I sat there using the internets and social media at that time to do the outreach. I made my own press release. I mean, this, this is literally how we got the play made. And it went from Mehran, Pakistani restaurant, to a special showcase of Berkeley Rep to San Jose State. And then Everyone rejected the play. They said, this play is too ethnic. The mainstream will not like this play. That's what was told to us. And so I waited a couple of years. And then my Muslim brother, Barack Hussein Obama, was about to get elected. And I'm like, maybe now is the time to put on the play. So about five years later in 2009, on 9-11, 2009, we decided to premiere the play at the New York Poets Cafe in Lower East Side, New York, which at that time was also hugely controversial because people said, how dare you put on a play on 9-11? think about it. What does that mean? Oh, because I'm Muslim. You see what I'm saying? So somehow I had the audacity to do this. But again, you take a risk and it worked and the audiences showed up. We put on a five-week run at New York and the last showing of the play. Ishmael said, guess who's coming to see the play? I'm like, who? Toni Morrison. I'm like, what? Yeah, I finally convinced her. And two hours before the play's premiere, there was a French cafe, two stores down to New York. And I'm sitting there with Toni Morrison, Ishmael Reed, eating cake. And the whole time, I'm like 29 years old. I'm about to turn 29. I'm like, don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid. Stupid. Don't say anything stupid. And I'm like, want to talk about Tony Morrison, about writing and all this stuff. And then she, meanwhile, had just seen Wanda Sykes' comedy special. And she wants to tell us the Wanda Sykes jokes. And she's trying to tell these dick jokes, but she keeps laughing and interrupting herself. And I'm like, wow. Okay. I'm sitting here with Tony Morrison and Ishmael Reed and they're talking. And then she turns to me and she goes, But you know how it is with us writers. You know how it is with the artistic process. It just starts in the back of our brain and then it grows and takes a life of its own. That's the most fun. And I was like, wow, she's referring to me as a fellow artist.
0: Who are some of the other writers besides Toni Morrison and Ishmael Reed that are in your personal canon? I mean, I know you've worked with Dave Eggers. I know you think very highly of his work. And Gary Steingart has blurbed your book. But also, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of little failure here, I mean, yeah, yeah. His, his memoir is really charming, but it's not dissimilar in that you're using humor to say, hey, listen, this is slightly extraordinary, these circumstances. This is not Sunday in Columbus kind of thing.
1: Gary, uh, you know, uh, he blurbed the book, which is, he's a Russian Jewish immigrant. And I think you said something, which it was a huge compliment to you that I really appreciate. You talked about the intersections uh, and the connections and the specificity and how you found. You were able to attach yourself onto the book through the specifics. And I think that's what's key is the universal is often told through the specific. And we are told, we, us minorities or BIPOCs or marginalized communities, to remove the specifics, remove the merch and the masala, remove all the ethnic stuff. The mainstream will not tolerate it, right? And so these authors that you mentioned, they put in all the merch and the masala. Toni Morrison did. Ishmael Reed does. Mohsen Hamad, when I saw him, like a Pakistani writer, this is amazing. Gary Steingart is. Dave Eggers, at least, you know, he's a white dude, but he does his work and he goes and reports. These are some of the things that I read and, and I was reading. I also read comedians' memoirs. I read Tanahasi Coates. Uh, I read Trevor Noah. I even read Carrie Fisher. And I think that kind of mix and match reflects within the book, right? It's like a totally. mixture of humor, uh, tell all, also serious stuff some blunt truths, uh, connect the dots, you know, Ishmael, I think, and I connected because we, he used to make these pop cultural and historical references in our, in our class. And I used to be the one to get it. And I remember just early on, he used to like say, okay, I can talk to watch. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a kind of a connection. So, the, you know, and his work, he merges everything. He doesn't care. It's like a booyah base. And so I feel like that's why those artists and writers were able to, dance around in genre and use humor and mix history with politics. Those are the ones I'm kind of attracted to. And I think you can see reflections of that in this work.
0: What do you want readers to know about Go Back to Where You Came From?
1: I want readers to know that we aren't going back, number one, that we're here to stay. And I want readers to know that we've heard a lot about the elegy of some folks who are considered mainstream, rust belt, real, electable But there are others who are also real and rust belt and electable. They just haven't been given the lead role. And we don't want to replace you. We just want to be the co-protagonists of the American narrative. We just want to add a verse. And I think if you really want to enjoy delicious food and great music and live on a vibrant street corner, it is in your interest to stretch and expand this country to accommodate the rest of us. And that's my hope with Go Back to Where You Came
0: From. And the book does end on a very hopeful note. I want to be clear about that. The humor and the hopefulness are really a treat. So Wajahad Ali, thank you so much. The new book is Go Back to Where You Came From and it is out now.
1: Thank you. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.